Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we come to you as the one who is ultimate, the one who is eternal, the one who is unchanging, the one in whom we find all absolutes. Uh, You're the one in whom we move and live and have our being. You alone, Lord, uh, exist in and of yourself. You have life in and of yourself. Uh, And all of us, we are derivative. We exist in you. And Lord, we thank you that we can have uh, not only physical life, that our our movement and breath and our heartbeat comes from you as you sustain us and uphold us by your will, but Lord, even more for the wonderful grace of salvation that comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, that in him we can have true life, fullness of life, as Jesus said, abundant life. I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So Lord, we thank you for all that we have in him. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would sharpen our minds in the truth, uh, that you would help us to uh, understand your world, not just as the way that it is, but as a world which reflects your intellect and your wisdom and and your design, uh, and that we would see the, the fingerprints of your wisdom in the world that's all around us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So this morning, we're talking about presuppositional apologetics uh, in general, and then more particularly, uh, the transcendental argument for God. And and the reason I want to cover some of these bigger categories is because as you guys finish this course, or you go out and explore uh, other areas, you you might say, oh, well, I, I want to know more about the historical proofs for the resurrection of Christ. I want to know more about presuppositional apologetics and what this is all about, uh, because I, I'm obviously not doing anything comprehensive in the 50 minutes that we spend together, but I'm just giving you a little sliver of these different fields of apologetics, these different branches, and I, I'm just exposing you to it so that you might say, oh, that, that is something that I would like to pursue. So this morning, presuppositional apologetics. Uh, and I know those are big words, uh, the transcendental argument. Don't be intimidated by that. But what are presuppositions? Things you already have in your head, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, opinions you've already created. Yeah, they're, they're things that we presuppose, uh, that things that we assume to be true without feeling the need to prove them. Those are, are, are we have basic presuppositions, and everyone has them. So what comes to mind now when I say the word transcend? Transcendent. Okay, good. Above, over and above. Yeah. So, so things that are transcendent are those things that exist. Uh, if we use that language, over and above our created material world. Uh, there are things that exist apart from, not subject to, the limitations of our material universe. So these are re- objective realities that time and space and culture do not create. They're not subject to these things. They exist apart from the the confines of certain times and cultures and periods. And so we have in mind things like logic, things like meaning, things like morality, uh, things of this nature. And the transcendent argument is that essentially a secular worldview is not able to provide the necessary preconditions for logic, meaning, morality, or even science. 
in, in fact, in order to use logic, have moral values, values, or do science, the presuppositionalists would argue that they must use Christian presuppositions in order to do those very things. And they would call that borrowed capital, uh, that you know, the atheist has to stand on a Christian worldview in order to make sense out of the world that they live in. And this approach uh, was developed by a guy named Cornelius Van Til in the 1920s. He was a Reformed minister, and it, it was kind of a big shift, uh, certainly in uh, Reformed apologetics. And I just want to briefly contrast this against other forms like classical and evidential apologetics, because this is actually a significant debate when, when you get into the, the an in-house debate about what is the best way to do apologetics. So, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, and I just want to ex- highlight these again, because you, you come to understand something of what this argument is getting at, in contrast to things like the cosmological argument, or the teleological argument, which assumes a lot of common ground with the unbeliever, and then we can reason from there. But So like last week, we consider the historical proofs for the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and that's typically part of evidential apologetics. And in evidential approach, the assumption is that, that we can both, unbeliever and believer, go side by side, and we can look at the objective evidence, and then we can draw conclusions about what is the, the best way to account for that evidence. We can just follow the evidence and go where the, where the evidence leads us. But the presuppositionalists would object to the evidentialists on theological grounds. So the, the hardline precept, that's this short precept position, would say, the evidence is not the problem. We've already established this. The problem is the suppression of the evidence because they're in rebellion against God. What can be known about God is plain to them, uh, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so what we need to do is not just give them more and more evidences and more and more knowledge, but we need to confront their rebellion against the Creator, uh, not give them more facts. It's, an, it's not an information problem, it's a sin problem. And that's true. Uh, we considered that in the, the beginning, in our introduction, that Romans says clearly that what can be known about God is plain to everyone, that God has revealed it in the things that have been made, and that the natural man, we ourselves included, apart from his grace, suppress that truth and unrighteousness uh, because we'd rather do life our own way and create God on our own terms. Moreover, the, the presuppositional approach would argue that there's no such thing as an uninterpreted fact. That there's no such thing as bare evidence. That because we're all subjective observers, and everything we see, think, and experience gets filtered through our worldview and our presuppositions, uh, which are inevitable. And by presuppositions, they don't just mean whether or not God exists or certain convictions about moral values. Rather, they would argue, so this is a quote, since reality is a whole, we cannot prove our worldview with traditional premises and a conclusion because the very premises the reasoning process, virtually everything is included in the worldview. That's, that's pretty deep there. That the very reasoning process is part of your worldview. So, how can you prove 
your use of reason is rational? That's kind of the question that they're getting at. Uh, in order to prove it, you must use the very thing that you're trying to prove, which is you know, a logical fallacy called begging the question. Uh, you can't use the thing that you're trying to prove to prove it. And so, therefore, everyone must acknowledge that they come to the table with presuppositions. And the question is whether or not those presuppositions are biblical and in line with reality, or whether or not they are unbiblical. And so Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, would argue that the, the fundamental unbiblical presupposition is trying to think and trying to live autonomously from God, failing to acknowledge that we are dependent upon God for everything. So any thought or philosophy which does not begin with the recognition that our dependence that we are dependent upon God for all things, he would argue, is an unbiblical way to develop your worldview. So here's another quote summarizing this distinction. They would say, Traditional apologetics inflames human fallenness by allowing the person to think that they can decide truth. By presenting evidences and inviting the person to draw the conclusion that Christianity is true, the traditional apologist reinforces the idea that we think autonomously without putting God at the center of the knowing process. Such an approach makes humanity the judge of God rather than God and his word the judge of humanity. It is not man's place to decide whether the Bible is in fact the word of God. His responsibility is to submit to the Bible as part of the personal of personal submission to God. The non-believer does not have a knowledge problem, he has a sin problem. The answer is to submit to God and His Word, not to assert that He is qualified to judge what is truth. Only God can do that. The author goes on and says that in Van Til's position, if we use anything to prove that the Bible is the Word of God, we in effect put it above the Bible, making it a higher authority. But since nothing can be higher than God, nothing can be used to verify that the Bible is true. And if the Bible needed anything to verify it, it would not be God's word. Attempting to show that the Bible passes the test would be, to quote Van Til, blasphemous. So Van Til would say, even if you arrive at Christian conclusions, you're doing it in an unchristian way. And you are, by your very apologetic method, by the method that you're using, you're instructing people that they are not sinful rebels suppressing the truth and unrighteousness like the Bible says, that two, it is right and appropriate for them to think autonomously and independently from God and then they can judge God and stand above God and over God and His Word. So, all this is to say, Cornelius Van Til took his Reformed convictions very seriously and he wanted his apologetic approach to be shaped by his biblical convictions. And I appreciate that. Even though I might not come to the same exact place as he does in how he relates that to other branches of apologetics, and I don't think he is as revolutionary as he thought he was, but it's good at least be aware that these discussions, like uh, in-house debates, uh, are taking place between people that are saying, no, this is the best way, this is, this is a better way, this is more in line with Scripture. And, and I would ask you to maybe wrestle with that, uh, think about it. But we're not going to wade any deeper into that discussion. Yeah. What was the, I don't know what the term is, 
you said not using the the item to argue the item. What was it called? Uh, it's called begging the question. Just begging the question. That's yeah. What it's called a fallacy. Like a theory, yeah, fallacy. Fallacy, a logical so fallacy. You're calling it a fallacy. Yeah, yeah. So, because so isn't that what Christians do? We're using the Bible to to prove the Bible's truth. Yeah. So, so that that engages in this whole question of whether or not that's legitimate. So the evidentialist would say, no, you can't just use the Bible as the Word of God to verify the Bible. You have to use things outside. You have to use history. You have to use other arguments to verify the Bible is true. And we earlier established also that all reasoning ultimately depends on some form of circular reasoning at some point. Well, so that's what the, the presuppositionalist is going to say, uh, that, that we're all circular at some point. The question is how, <laughs> yeah, whether that circular reasoning is, yeah, so I, like I said, we're not going to get into the, the weeds of, of this because it can get pretty thick, but I hope that the rest of this becomes more practical and uh, like seeing how this works out in, in real conversations and things like that. So, how does, well, it's, it doesn't get very simple, but uh, so, so how does presuppositional apologetics do this? It uses the, the transcendental argument. Hey, so, Sam, yeah, number two there, that last phrase can be known, is it supposed to be without Christian presuppositions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was, yeah, it was a long week, and uh, I was doing this very late. Well, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. So, the transcendental argument is an argument rooted in transcendent realities, that these things exist. Uh, and again, transcendent just means that these things exist apart from, they're not subject to the limitations of the material universe. It's something that is real. It really does exist, and yet it's not something that we can see. It's not something that we can measure by the scientific method or prove. And initially, I think historically, this argument focused primarily on the laws of logic, but then it has come to include also laws of morality and other things, meaning uh, where it's more fluid and, and comprehensive in its application. So my summary I couldn't find a good short summary, so I had to make one up and, and try to... I was trying to highlight how it's different than just the, the syllogisms that we've been looking at. So my summary would, would go something like this. That transcendent realities, like laws of logic, exist. In order to deny that laws of logic exist, or, or refute that claim, you must use laws of logic to construct an argument. So therefore, any attempt to refute transcendent realities, like laws of logic, are ultimately self-defeating and false. They're invalid because they undermine the very thing that they're trying to prove. Therefore, the presuppositionalists would argue, any and every argument for a secular, by secular worldview, I mean a materialist worldview, a worldview that says there's nothing outside of what we can see and measure and you know, empirically verify by the scientific method uh, is ultimately invalid because those arguments depend on transcendent realities like the laws of logic to 
to make the very argument that... I was just going to... Doesn't that assume that every secular worldview relies on logic? Well, every argument would. Okay. So we're talking about the argument. Yeah, somebody might say, my worldview is completely irrational. Uh, But most people are saying, I don't believe in Christianity because I don't think it's rational. And then they're going to make an argument for for why they don't think it's rational. And uh, we'll, we'll keep going, and then if there's still questions, we can try to work with that. So the goal of, of the transcendent argument, transcendental, seeks to, to prove God's existence by showing the impossibility of the opposite. That's actually the, the language that has traditionally been used. Greg Bonson is a very well-known proponent of, of early presuppositionalism. Uh, and he, he would say in debates, I'm going to prove God exists because it is impossible for him not to exist. And it's a pretty high claim and it kind of surprising. But as soon as someone makes an argument for why God does not exist, he simply would point out that in order for that argument to be valid, it depends upon laws of logic being objective and valid and unchanging, which can only be true in a world where a transcendent being exists in order to establish transcendent realities like laws of logic. So it's not a direct argument for the existence of God. Like, uh, remember the cosmological argument, like uh, all things that are created have a creator. The, The world is created, therefore there must be a creator. It's actually an argument that seeks to invalidate the opposing position. The goal is to invalidate opposing views, thereby, so it's an indirect argument, thereby affirming and validating the, the position that God does exist. So I would say the goal really is, practically, to, to pull the carpet out from their worldview and undermine the foundation for every truth claim that they would make. So transcendent realities, we're we're talking about all truth. Does truth exist? Can truth be known? Is there meaning in the world? And what the transcendental argument does is you can't make any truth claims. You can't make any claim about meaning or morality or truth because it depends upon transcendent realities that you are denying and you're, you're removing the foundation for. So this is kind of the, the big overview, I'd say, uh, of, of just kind of how it works out. And yeah, this argument can get very heady and, and philosophical, which I would say is typically going to be you know, unhelpful for us and unnecessary in, in conversations, both for the, ourselves and the people we're talking to. But I want to cover some of the basic ideas that are inherent to it. So, so when we're talking about laws of logic, what do we mean? What are laws of logic? That's a question. What are they? The law of non-contradiction. So, yeah. So, so for example, the law of non-contradiction, which states that something cannot be both true and false in the same way at the same time. You cannot say that a cloud is not a cloud. Like, that's an incoherent statement. It's, it's a contradiction because a cloud cannot be a cloud and not a cloud at the same time in the same way. And then you have really obvious things like 
the law of identity, <laughs> which states that something is what it is, and it's not what it's not. <laughs> uh, and you're like, well, duh. What, what's the point of this? It, like, exactly. The, these are intuitive, obvious statements, but they're the things by which rational discourse and and thought and communication are made possible. And, and not only are is something what it is, uh, but that something has a nature. It, it has properties that define what it is. So, yeah, the, these simple things. A cloud is a cloud, and a rock is a rock. A fish is not a car. Uh, and, and we can't say fish and mean car, and if we did, we're, we're talking nonsensically. And then there's also the law of the excluded middle. A statement is either true or false without middle ground. I am alive, so there are these categorical statements. I am alive. That, that's either true or, or false. Like I, I'm either dead or alive. Someone is pregnant, that's either true or false. And then the, the second issue is, are these laws of logic transcendent realities? Why would we say that? You mean you say there's, there's no such thing as like a little bit pregnant? Yeah, or a kind of pregnant. But in these laws of logic, you have our world that is ter- currently saying, evidently we're not logical because you can have a man be a woman. Yeah. And that seems so crazy. Yeah. We're the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at when I was like, doesn't that assume every secular worldview yeah. believes in laws of logic? Is like we see these videos of people defending things like transgenderism yeah. and their their argument is completely nonsensical. Like, yeah. So clearly not everybody uses laws of logic. Yeah, and that might very well be true. Uh, and But I would still be curious to know what their objections to... You know, and, and we're, we're going to talk, so the rest of the class, we're going to talk about other objections to Christianity. So all these, we've looked at a handful of arguments, uh, and then the rest of the class, we're going to be looking at objections to Christianity and how we would deal with them, such as something that they might not have, like a, a rational argument that they're lodging against the truth claims of Christianity. They, their argument might be, Christians are narrow-minded, and a biblical worldview makes you a bigot, or like it's bigoted, and, and that kind of stuff. And so th- that obviously is a different category of, uh, th- it's a different issue that you're trying to address. Yeah, Patrick? Doesn't it make the assumption that all transgender people are non-believers? When so, quite a few of them are believers. Yeah, well, we could have that discussion, but I, I would just say, broadly speaking, that anybody who is making their identity, their fundamental identity, in something that God says is not compatible with following Christ, the Bible would say that's it's not a credible profession. And that's not just in, you know, if for me as a, as a straight man, you know, if I'm living in adultery, and I say, I'm an adulterer, that's just who I am, that's my identity, uh, I would say, each and every person here would say, you know, Sam is not a true follower of Christ because he doesn't honor Christ as holy, he doesn't take his law serious. And so, is it possible? In their community, they would be accepted as Christians. Yeah, and I would say that community doesn't represent the, the church. And so, and it doesn't represent Jesus, to what, what I would say. Um, and so, 
you know, th this is a, a bigger discussion, but, but I'm happy to address a little bit here. Um, that, for example, so let's just say that's a hot button issue, uh, you know, homosexuality. Can, can a Christian, and this is something that we address in the kind of objections, that can, can a, a gay person be a Christian? And, and so I would say, well, it, it's certainly possible for someone to be a genuine, born-again believer in Jesus and really uh, have the Spirit of God abiding in them. They, they honor Christ as holy, and they have homosexual desires. And the question is, when I think it comes to, as Jesus said, taking up your cross and following me, it is whether or not your identity is going to be supreme in your life that's going to direct and determine who you are and what you do, or will it be the law of God? And so, you know, I, each and every one of us struggles with sexual, unholy sexual desires in, in different, different ways, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual. I'm, I'm certain that we've all had ungodly sexual desires. And so for me, as a, you know, a straight married man, in the same way, if I do not put to death the deeds of the flesh, as scripture would say, if I do not crucify those ungodly passions which don't conform to being a follower of Christ, then I, I would not be a, a genuine Christian. Uh, you know, I could call myself whatever I want, but, but there's an objective reality. So, so we believe that there are objective realities that determine whether or not someone is actually a Christian. It's not just a matter of self-identification. But it's whether or not you are actually born again, or whether or not you are actually indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if you are, then you will seek to honor Christ uh, in your sexual conduct and in every sphere of life. And so every single person has sin that they are to be repenting of daily. And the question is whether I'm going to be the, the sovereign of my life and determine what I think is good and right and holy, or whether or not Jesus is. And, and so Jesus said very plainly, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And so Jesus said, for example, if anyone looks at a, a woman with lust in her heart, well, he says, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at, at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And so if I, as a professing Christian, say, well, I have these desires, God gave me these desires, and so I'm just going to you know, watch pornography all day and I can lust after women and, and that's fine. That's not incompatible with, with me following Jesus because those are just natural desires that I have. Uh, I think Jesus would say to me, uh, as he outlines in, in Matthew 7, uh, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did I not teach at, in churches? Did I not preach your word? Did I not do many mighty works? And these are Jesus' words, not mine. He says, and I will turn to them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so, and I don't harbor any hostility to anybody who's homosexual or transgender. I, I love them, and I, I care about them, and I would want them to, to know who Jesus is. And I would say, I need the same exact grace and forgiveness that they need. Uh, there, there's no difference. There's no difference between me and them. And they also are called to repent of their sin and follow Christ in the same exact way that, that I am. And we have different, I would say we have different sins and different 
different ways in which we stray from the law of God, but that's a universal command uh, for sinners, which I'm one of them, and them, to Jesus comes and says, repent of your sins and follow me. Uh, believe in me and embrace me both as the Savior who can deliver you from the judgment of your sins and the Lord who calls you to take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, so so I'll... I'll <laughs> Oh, let's go back to, uh, <laughs> to this. I, I appreciate the question, though. Um, so, okay, so, so you have these laws of logic, and I'll just try to go through this quickly. So, laws of logic are not dependent upon space. Uh, so, no matter where you go, whether it's here or China or Asia, uh, true, they, they, they might have different ways of conceiving things, but would we, would we say that the laws of logic no longer exist? That in China, you can say that a cloud is a rock, and that is true and valid. No. If you go to outer space, uh, can something be true and not true at the same time in the same way? No. We'd say the laws of logic apply and are valid no matter where you are. It's not dependent upon space. It's not dependent upon time. Whether you go... You know, a thousand years, two thousand, five thousand years in the past, is it true that something, that the law of non-contradiction, that something cannot be true and false in the same way at the same time? You're like, no. Uh, whether you go in the past or in the future, uh, the laws of logic universally and uniformly apply, whether it's space, time, or or matter. So, so they're not dependent on on matter. In, in the terms of they're not found in atoms. Uh, they're, they're not found in uh, anything that we can measure or quantify by the empirical method. They're transcendent. They're immaterial. And yet we still believe they're valid. Laws of logic are not the product of human thought. We often disagree. We often have varying thoughts. We often, we can hold things, we can believe things that are not logically sound. And yet we still believe that there is a, a standard which our thoughts are either conforming to or deviating from. And that's true of the believer or unbeliever alike. It's not just in our heads. It's something that exists that's external to our minds. Yeah, so logical absolutes are not mere conventions. Uh, a convention is an agreed-upon principle, but since people differ upon what is true and what is not true, then logical absolutes, if there are absolutes, they cannot be the product of human minds and therefore human conventions or human agreements. This would mean that logical absolutes were invented as an agreement by a sufficient number of people. But that would mean that if there's enough people to say that up is down and down is up, then it's true. And I'm not just talking about words, what the definitions of words but that the essence of what, you know, go back to a rock and a cloud, the essence of what a rock is, with its properties of being hard and uh, dense, that this rock is not a cloud. And a cloud is not a rock. And no matter how many people say a cloud is a rock or a rock is a cloud, it doesn't make it true. Uh, and, and that is part of things that, that we would engage in and, and say it doesn't matter how many people agree and affirm that something is true that doesn't make it true. It doesn't matter how many people say in 
antebellum South or in the Ku Klux Klan. It doesn't matter how many people in their community say that African Americans have less dignity and value and are subhuman. That doesn't make it true. Why? Because there's objective truth. Uh, there is a transcendent reality. There is something that is real, no matter what how many people say, or what they say, there is something that is objective and true and unchanging. So, these logical absolutes are not conventions, and that these logical absolutes are the foundation for rational thought, science, and communication. And, and again, this is just self-evident in reality. Like, in, in actual day-to-day discussion... It's a presupposition that we all take for granted that logic is real and it's valid and it's binding upon everyone. Because imagine if I were in a debate with someone and they said, well, I don't believe in God. And I said, oh, well, I'm so glad that you believe that God is great and that Jesus Christ is the Son and the Bible is God's word. And I'm so glad that I persuaded you of the truth of Christianity. You know, they would say, I think you misunderstood me. I said, I don't believe in God. And I said, well, in my system of logic, the fact that you don't believe in God doesn't mean that you don't believe in God. You know, they would stop and say, this is nonsense. You are being irrational, and I'm not going to have a conversation with you because you're being ridiculous. You know, like, that's what would happen if I tried to say, oh, well, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. I believe that when you say, I don't believe in God, that you believe in God you immediately descend into nonsense. And, and then, like I said, it, it's immediately obvious to us because when we're in a conversation with us, with someone, everyone is expecting you to play by the rules of the universe called the laws of logic. And as soon as you stop playing by the rules of the universe, people point it out and they say, hey, what you said there doesn't count. That's not valid because you are not playing by the rules. And we have a word for those. It's called logical fallacies. And I say, that's a fallacy. That, you know, that I assure you there's lots of atheists who are going to say this. That's a fallacy. That's, that's not a valid argument. So you can't make that point because it doesn't, you're not playing by the rules. And the point is that we all live and act like these rules really do exist, <laughs> that, that the world is governed by actual laws of logic and reason. And the atheist appeals to them as if I'm bound to it. And, and so the question is, well, what is reason? What is logic? You know, can you find it in nature? Can you measure it? Can you establish it and prove it by the scientific method that logic exists? And of course, the answer to all these questions is no, you can't. It's not anything that can be verified by the empirical scientific method. The validity of logic and reason cannot be proven by those means. It is a presupposition that we're bringing to the table, that everyone is bringing to the table. And the the whole scientific method and endeavor rests upon them being true. Like, if these laws of logic and reason aren't valid, then science is utterly meaningless. And every assertion descends into the kind of nonsense that I was just describing. Uh, Like, every assertion becomes nonsense if they're not governed by laws of logic. And and this is the whole point. The presuppositionalist says, your worldview 
as a materialist, doesn't give you sufficient warrant. It doesn't give you a, a proper foundation to account for any transcendent reality that is unchanging in time and space and that, that cannot be found in matter because you're telling me, you're arguing that all that exists is matter. All that exists is a physical universe and yet you're appealing to these transcendent realities to establish the validity of your argument. And you're trying to undermine my assertions by appealing to these laws of logic, which by your worldview, you are undermining. So, you know, what is the materialist secular worldview appealing to when they say it's not rational to believe in God? Are they appealing to the chemical reactions that are taking place in their brain and they're saying the chemical reactions that are happening in my brain are saying that it's not rational and by that standard I'm telling you that you hold an invalid position. Are they appealing to the chemical reactions in in my brain? What if they aren't the same? There must be something that is external to both of our brains that's objective and unchanging that serves as a standard by which they can appeal to. In order for that to be Valid and binding. And so, in in practice, one of the things that the transcendental argument does, and this is just, I would say it's one argument among many, that might be helpful in certain circumstances with certain people. But it can immediately shift the, the topic of the conversation and put the burden of proof back on the, the person you're speaking to. Say, hold on. Wait a second. It doesn't matter what the claim is, but hold on. You're appealing to from whence? From whence these laws of logic? Yeah, yeah. So you're appealing. You're using logic and reason, and I believe in those. But you're appealing to these, and you're using them to establish your argument against my convictions and against my worldview. But what is the foundation in your worldview for? logic and reason being binding and applicable to me and everyone else in the universe, why, why should I play by those rules? So we're all living like there are these there are rules. And, and the question is, why should I play by those rules? If you're telling me that those rules really don't exist. And strictly speaking, if the argument for atheism is logically valid... So, so if they're making a, a logically valid argument, then it's invalid because they've the logic that they're using to prove it isn't real. So, so that's why it's, it's a self-defeating argument. It's at least a presuppositionalist argument. So the goal is to show that in order for them to successfully make their argument, they need to affirm the validity of the very thing that they're trying to deny thus making it a self-defeater and an invalid argument. And then our positive argument is that Christianity actually gives us a rational foundation upon which to stand and make and use reason and logic and say, I'm, I'm glad that you use logic and reason. You know, I believe in logic and reason too. The difference is that I think I have a foundation upon which I can stand to, to use logic and reason because we're living in a universe that's created by a reasonable God, a God who is the source of all rationality and wisdom and truth, a God who is unchanging and 
transcendent and spans all space and time. The, the very being of God and who He is establishes, gives us a foundation for transcendent, unchanging, immaterial realities like logic, like meaning, like morality. And so everyone else is talking about these things and we're using these things and we're affirming these things, the unbeliever and the believer of like. And the presuppositionalist is saying, okay, but do you have a foundation for that? Do you have rational warrant to make those kinds of claims? And so I'm going to show you a video. Um, I, I wouldn't agree with everything the, the way that... His, the, his name is Jeff Durbin. He does a lot of apologetics. and um, But I just want to show you what this looks like in, in action. And again, so, some of his tone and the way that I think he cuts him off too much, but I'm not going to quibble with him. D.L. Moody once said to critics of his, he said, I like the way that I'm doing evangelism better than the way that you're not doing evangelism. Uh, so I don't want to be critical of our brother here. But just to show you it in action, and then we'll basically be done. Wins. And all of this, so you don't know. And all the reasoning you're, you're doing right now, you're appealing to a universe that's uniform and that can be studied and investigated. And yet, you told me that you believe you're just stardust. There's no sovereign governance of the universe. So how are you making an appeal to uniformity when you don't know that the next ten seconds will be like the past? Because you don't have, you have no no certainty that the next ten minutes, next twenty minutes will be like the past. The same physical laws that govern the last 10 seconds will govern. So the it's, next a, it's 10 a gamble, seconds. really. You don't know that it will be. Yes. Actually, it would be great. Do you believe that it gives you a solid foundation for science that the future yes. is a gamble? No. It's not a gamble. Because as a Christian, I believe that I have a justification that satisfies the preconditions of intelligibility for the uniformity so, of nature. Let me tell you what this Christianity is, besides being a uh, doomsday fertility cult. Well, that's okay, though, because I'm stardust. Uh, you, you, you are You're stardust. So, so doomsday cults and and uh, arrogance and nastiness really is meaningless, though, isn't it? Ultimately, so now you're going to tell me I'm a- after poking at me long enough, you've decided I'm arrogant. No, 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 no. Him, so, he's oh, arrogant. He's arrogant. So, not you. He is. You were bothered by his arrogance. I'm saying, but he started. I'm I'm bothered by the fact that I'm a homosexual and have been being oppressed by jerks like that for as far back as I can remember. So if I get very I, I, angry... I, 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 would, I would want you to know you're not going to get that kind of treatment from me. I'm going to love you. But but just with that as a question, who? but if you were Stardust, why would it matter that someone's oppressing you? Why would it matter that Stardust is bumping into Stardust? Who cares? You see, what I think you're showing is this. I think you're showing that you, in, in, with, deep within you, you know you have the image of God state. You have value and worth. And it is wrong for a man to oppress you and be nasty to you. That is wrong. I agree with you. But see, I have a basis as a Christian to say that's wrong. You believe you're stardust. I believe I'm stardust. So what's wrong with stardust oppressing stardust? You're making questions out of... Well, I, I, but that's what you said you believe you are. And I don't believe that about you. I, I refuse to accept what you say. And after all these years of evolution... That's, that's, that's a presupposition. You believe, but you believe ultimately that you're just matter, ultimately stardust. Yes. Okay. So, so you, here you would say that non-material things do not exist. Non-material things do not exist. So what are you? So you're, you're getting off this, this laws of logic. The several logic. Laws of logic. Laws of logic. 
Are they material? They're a program running on the human mind. So it's happening in your brain right now. There, there, there is lots of chemical reactions. So you're not even thinking right now. You're just physically. I'm a, a state machine. Okay, so you're, you're not, you're, you would need, you can't help but think the thoughts you are because your brain is just functioning that way. You're fizzing atheistically. I'm fizzing Christian theistically. And you're fizzing because the religion. I, I don't have to listen to you right now, but because you're fizzing. Do, do chemical processes produce truth? Yes, they do. Show me well, a chemical process. They don't produce truth, but they can certainly analyze. Let me ask you this: Is true matter? Is truth material? It's a state. Okay, it's a state. A is state of, 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 of the mind machine. Is there absolute yeah. truth? There's a whole bunch of them, I would imagine. So there's no absolute truth. So we could have. I think, I think he said he does believe in absolute truth. You, oh, you, you do believe in absolute truth? Well, as long as we're going to define that as, as something rational. Okay, well then, now we're on an important point, rationality. Rationality would depend on laws of logic, being universal, unchanging, and necessary, correct? In other words, rationality doesn't just exist in your mind, it has to also be something that I'm holding to, and someone in Iceland. Well, I would like to hold you to it, but uh, as I was about to say, religion has acted on the gene pool to make people just, more and more susceptible. They're just fizzing, though. It's stardust fizzing. Why do you why are you why are you bothered as as one bit of stardust that's fizzing? Why are you bothered about what other bags of stardust are fizzing? You said it's chemical reactions happening in the brain. You said yep. you're stardust. Why are you worried about what stardust? See, I think Wayne, you're showing that you have the image of God all over you because you're living like yeah. a Christian but denying God's existence. Because there was no evidence of God. Again, you're. It's but like, I, it's, it's, I can tell what he is because I look in all the history books. I can see the evolution of the belief. Well, I've already shown you that that that, that I, I reject that claim. That if you would study the actual sources yourself, you wouldn't make any connection between the story in the Bible of, a, of the one and only true and living, self-existing God who enters into His own creation to rescue the rebels. There is nothing in history that's parallel to that. Nothing. Nothing in history. Um, and so what I would show you, what I would encourage you to see... Osiris, virgin birth... The, the, right, no, that's, all I would say to you is, is study the original Osiris and don't, read, don't, look on, don't, don't depend on what someone else tells you it says. Read it yourself and see if you can find parallels between the virgin birth of Christ that's predicted in Genesis and in Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus comes between a woman giving a, having a virgin birth and then a woman getting uh, getting pregnant and giving birth to an elephant. Tell me if that's a virgin birth uh, narrative. It's it's just not, Wayne. And I'm going to just say this to you. But that's uh, not the same story we, that I'm trying we, to compare. Oh, we, can, we can wrap this up with just this. I know, you, I know you're here for this, this, this rally. My contention, respectfully to you, is this, and I mean this with love, Wayne, is that you're not just stardust, and you know it. You know, I do not know that. You know that there's more, well, that you're living as though you believe there is. You say you're stardust, but you're complaining about people hurting you. You're complaining about and hurting everyone else. And they're stardust. And dragging they're stardust. humanity back into Wayne, the primordial Wayne, ooze. When you elevate stardust above other matter, you're internally inconsistent. What's this arbitrary decree you've made that this stardust is more important than this? That's not a state machine. But the point is, is, is what, you, what you're saying that is, is if it fizzes better, it's more important? So if, no. if you get a bag of stardust that fizzes better than you, can he off you? I'm sure he will. Okay, but, but would that be a good thing and a, a healthy thing you'd want him to do? As long as it didn't hurt. 
So he can kill you as long as it doesn't hurt you. I thought you were complaining a little bit ago about people oppressing you because you're homosexual. Yeah, well, it, gets, it gets tiresome. But, but why would it bother you? It's just Stardust doing what Stardust does in these conditions. Well, because if they got control of the building on the other end of the mall here, that kind of person would put me in a concentration camp. But so it's just, uh, Do you realize that Mormons are still using shock treatment on their kids when they find out that they're they're gay? I didn't even know that. Yeah, well, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that you don't but know. Using, you using, your, using your... Well, Mormonism is a big aspect of our ministry. We reach out to them a lot. But using your foundations, though, Wayne, I just don't understand uh, why you care what Mormons are doing. I don't see a difference between... My foundations, I have a justification for logic, science, and morality. You're, and they would you're, claim the same. But thing. your foundation... Well, they, they borrow from the Bible to distort its message. It's interesting. It's internally inconsistent, and I would argue the same about you, I mean, lovingly, of course, that you're internally inconsistent because you act like you're valuable, and I believe you are, by the way, Wayne, you certainly are, but yet you, you say out of your mouth, I'm stardust, the universe is unguided, and all these things, but then you stand on the same worldview I ultimately am, that you have value and dignity and meaning, that there's uh, laws of logic People that we must hold to, but you see, in your worldview, Wayne, you shouldn't need to. You're stardust. Here's a, here's a collective bag of meaty protoplasm right here, all gathering to talk about reason. And they would all, and Dan Barker agrees with you, by the way, I interviewed him this week, that ultimately laws of logic is just what your brain is doing. So here you have chemical processes fizzing. Who cares? Who cares? There's no truth being produced here. And they're not sure. And, and ultimately, if you believe what they say about yourself, then you don't have any value or meaning or dignity. And I refuse to believe that about you, Wayne. I believe you do have value and dignity and meaning, and I believe that you show deep down that you know them. Because you're living like Absolutely a Christian. Not. Okay. I would ask you... Actually, uh, in a way, that's insulting, because in a lot of ways, <laughs> if, if you just look at the essential right and wrong... The goal oh, actually, I'll say that. <laughs> what's right and what's wrong with startup? Then... then I behave a hell of a lot better than what's, a lot of Christians. No, on, on a scale, and I'm, I'm hearing you, on a scale, here you, you're calling this better, but you've got two values. Love people, treat them well, hate people, kill them. Why are you choosing one over the other as moral, as stardust? Why is one, why have you arbitrarily chosen this is better over genocide? Why isn't genocide the ha happy, healthy thing to do? It's the only way that humanity can go ahead. But who cares about humanity? Who cares about stardust producing more stuff? Well, I mean, it's a complete waste for all the stuff that has happened, all the little rolls of the dice that have led us to where we're at today. Stardust. And humanity is going to destroy itself and much everything else on the cool little planet that we're on. So it doesn't really matter ultimately, does it? Ultimately, everything adds up to zero. Don't right. you know that? Right, see, and that, that is why, how you're not living, though. You're not living like everything ultimately adds up to zero. You're living as though there's meaning and truth and goodness and beauty, and I agree with you. But what I'm saying is it shows that you know them. You know them. Absolutely em. not. Well, that... So, I mean, you can at least get a sense for his, you know, he, he's just hammering that whether it's logic or reason or meaning and morality that you live like these things exist. And I agree with you. Like, I affirm that you do have dignity. I, I affirm that it's wrong for people to oppress you and to mistreat you and hurt you. But, like, but that's not a rational conclusion of the premise that you're saying with, you know, I'm, I'm just a material, I'm just a bag of... <laughs> 
cytoplasm or whatever. And that, that's not a rational conclusion to the premise that you're bringing to the table. And so, yeah, n- nobody, nobody's perfect, uh, including Jeff Durbin, but, but I think it's just helpful to see, like, anytime somebody is, on one hand, holding that, that secular worldview, world but is still maintaining that, you know, that their arguments are valid, that their reasoning is valid, and it's binding upon you, and, and that you're obligated to play by the, the, the rules of the universe of, of logic and reason, and that all, what they're saying has meaning and significance and value. I mean, they're going to gather together and rally and for human rights. And we say, yes, that's good. Like, it's good to not have people mistreated, but, but why? If, you, if you're staying on your foundation, why would you, why does it matter? Um, you know, and, and he just kept harping on that. Like, it, clearly, it was a, something from earlier in the conversation that he acknowledged. He, you know, I'm just, we're just all just stardust, and he said, you're just stardust. You know, why, why does any of this matter? And so, I, I would say, maybe in those conversations, this same argument would be applicable in, in just highlighting that uh, any kind of moral accusation has to be grounded in something and a moral God has to underwrite those checks <laughs> of, of morality and meaning. And I would say we, we should point people to that and, and affirm them as far as we can. And like Jeff Durbin does, he, he says, this is what's distinct about kind of the presuppositional approach. He, he you know, says, no, I, I know you know this. You, you, know, uh, you are made in the image of God and you do know the truth and, and you're suppressing it. But you're inconsistent with, your own, with yourself. So, anyways, we need to go. You're also, living in conformity to these uh, transcendent realities. Yeah. So, so they're they're they sense that it's true uh, that they do have meaning and that they have a sense of right and wrong and they want have a sense of right and wrong and live out of that. Uh, and yet, they're denying the very foundation upon which those claims can be established. Anyways, well, we'll pray. Lord, we. We know that you are the one who underwrites all the checks that we make, the statements and assertions, for them to be valid, for them to be rationally meaningful, and to have moral significance. Lord, we know that we ourselves fall short of the way, the image of God that we are created to to walk in, to be, to reflect your glory, to, to honor you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and Lord, uh, we pray that you would give us grace to not only know the truth, to know uh, rational arguments, but Lord, to also to live out uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ, to not only to be pure and holy unto you, but to, to love our neighbor as ourselves and to care for others in, in a way that reflects well uh, upon you uh, as the one that we are created for and redeemed for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.